Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Today's episode features an interview with Corey Seville, who is a technical director for the Hosting and Compute Center, or HACC, at the Defense Information Systems Agency, or DISA. DISA is in the process of getting ready for zero trust with its Thunderdome Zero Trust prototype, which the Pentagon hopes will improve cloud security and user experience when accessing data in the cloud. DISA is also gearing up to award the first contract for the Joint Warfighting Cloud capability in December, so cloud modernization and security are top of mind for defense IT leaders like Corey this year. This episode is sponsored by Thundercat and Dell Technologies. Agencies still depend on multiple IT environments for executing critical computing workloads. Government-approved cloud environments now top where those workloads are managed. Hybrid, public, and private cloud solutions deliver consistency and scale network storage. Thundercat Technology and Dell Technologies deploy solutions to minimize data complexity and maximize data value. Learn more on how to optimize your agency's ecosystem for outcomes in a hybrid cloud world. The future of cloud is now. Today, Corey is going to discuss how the environment as code approach to hybrid cloud can help DISA mitigate vulnerabilities more effectively. He is also going to discuss the sliding scale of responsibility for security efforts between DISA and its cloud vendors, as well as some of the specific cybersecurity risks associated with different cloud solutions, such as software as a service. Some cloud strategies that hold promise for DISA are containerized web services, DevSecOps, and infrastructure as code. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Cybercast today, Corey. I want to jump into the conversation by starting with the Billington Cyber Summit a few weeks ago. You explored the idea of environment as code to manage vulnerabilities in the cloud more effectively. And I'm interested in what you meant by that because I haven't I haven't heard of that before. And I'm interested in how this type of resiliency strategy might be attractive to DISA's hybrid cloud efforts. Sure, yeah. So uh, environment is code. Uh, everybody's got their own you know, name for it. You, you'll hear infrastructure is code, environment is code. Um, but essentially what it means is if you look at the way things were are done in more legacy or traditional environments, um, you know, you, you you rack a server, you install an operating system on it, and you put an application on top of it, and then you get another server, you put a you put an application on it, and et cetera, right? So you build your server racks, and and then you have uh, your network built around it. So you've got you know switches and routers and and all the the equipment necessary to you know have your infrastructure function. And what happens is in that environment, things can get lost. Sometimes it's difficult. Oh, I don't remember where I put that application. Or in the case of having, you know, an application that has multiple pieces, well, you know, I don't remember where the database for this sits, or did I move it from one server to another? Um, and so it can be really difficult to to get a in you know current view of what your environment looks like at, at any given time. By going to an infrastructure as code or an environment as code. Um, methodology, instead of, you know, doing all those things manually, building all those servers manually and, and kind of defining your infrastructure 
you know, in, in a manual way. Um, you actually create your environment by putting code out that represents your environment. So for example, I want three servers and on those servers, there's gonna be uh, you know, two uh, Apache web servers and one of them is gonna have a database. Well, I'm not gonna go in to my virtual manager, spin up three servers and go install those applications manually. I'm gonna use a, an automation tool to take a piece of code that I write. And in that code, I'm gonna define server one has this app and this database on it. Server two has this app, server three has this app. And I'm going to take that code put it into a repository, and I'm going to execute that code in an automation system that's going to build the environment on my behalf. After the environment's built, and we see that you know, the environment matches what's in the code, we basically, any changes we want to do, we bring them back and we make those changes in the code. So we don't make changes manually anymore, right? You don't go to the server and, and you know, toggle uh, any settings on the servers, you're not going into the, the network and toggling changes in the network, you're going back to the code. So it all comes down to when you build an environment and you make uh, changes to an environment, you do that all in, a, in code and you let the automation tools make the changes on your behalf. The, the real benefit around this is when you're defining an environment as code, that environment becomes self-documenting. So you never have to question, you know, well, how many servers do I have running right now? And, and what does my network topology look like? It's all in that code. And if you're forcing all of your changes back through that code, back through the, the code process, not only are you self-documenting your code, but you're also self-documenting your changes. So change management becomes uh, very easy, right? It's, it's all documented in code. Um, transparency of changes becomes very easy. Uh, documentation for compliance and security uh, becomes very easy. So when you look at how environments today are being built and you look at how complex they're becoming, right? It's not just building a server in a data center anymore. It could be servers across three different cloud providers all over the world. Um, and, and when you're building these, these very large scale applications distributed all over the globe, change management, security and compliance auditing, and, and just the environment builds in general can become a nightmare. And this is where we see environment as code and infrastructure as code as being very, very important uh, to uh, any cloud effort and especially hybrid cloud efforts where you have pieces of an application deployed on-premise and other pieces deployed in cloud providers uh, all over the place. Gotcha, yeah, that's uh, really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before. So. This kind of feeds into my next question. You also described cybersecurity as a sliding scale of responsibility between the buyer of the cloud services, in this case, DISA, and the vendor. So how do you balance this sliding scale as you continue to move IT operations and workloads to the cloud? And what does this look like in an environment as code? So the, the sliding scale uh, is is always an interesting conversation, and, and it really is a it really is a conversation that uh, the scope of it changes depending on the type of application you're talking about. Um, and and so we, at DISA, uh, you know, in in the hosting and compute center or, or hack as we call it, um, you know, 
we're responsible for a wide variety of applications. So we could have applications sitting inside our data center. We could be managing applications out in a commercial cloud environment, uh, or we could be managing parts of a software as a service delivered application um, that is holistically delivered by, by a cloud provider. And the scale of, re the, the scale of responsibility um, you know, for cyber events and cyber reporting and things like that shifts depending on the application you're talking about. And so when we, when we look at this, we, we tend to look at what data is being put out on these, on these systems and who is in the best position to see the full threat landscape of threats against that data. And so, you know, on an application, for example, that's inside of our data centers, well, we own the network for that. We own the servers generally that they're on. Um, you know, we're providing them as, as a hosting solution. Um, and then the, the uh, you know, the application owner obviously owns the application, but we own all the infrastructure sort of supporting that application. So we're actually in the best position to protect uh, that application and to, and to, you know, report on cyber data uh, for that particular application. Whereas in contrast, a software as a service provided application, the provider of that application actually owns all the infrastructure uh, that is necessary to make that application function. So in, in, in that realm, they are they're in the best position uh, to provide all the cyber data and, and protect that application. Where it becomes challenging and where we see the, the, the sliding scale continually moving is as we move towards hybrid cloud deployments, as we move towards multi-cloud deployments, meaning multi, using multiple public cloud providers together on a particular application. Um, and one of the ways we've solved this problem, or well, I won't say solved, but one of the ways that we have, have gotten better at this is we are making an attempt to do vendor relations differently inside the of, of hack. Um, and so we don't view a we don't generally view a vendor, especially the, the cloud providers and service provider vendors, uh, as a vendor, right? We don't view them as, hey, you're you're selling me something, I'm buying it from you, and that's where our relationship ends. Um, we really view this as a partnership. Because when you're using an application that is that is provided by a provider and it is a, you know, it's a as a software as a service delivered application that line of of who's responsible for what blurs so blurs so 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 effectively that you really have to join a partnership with these with the vendors and share intelligence data right and so as applications get deployed in these software as a service providers we we really have to partner with these groups and so what we find is each of these providers generally has their own uh, security and, and compliance team. Um, so we make sure that we are marrying up our uh, security and incident responders with their security and incident responders and make sure that that line of communication is open. Make sure there's clear and, and defined roles and responsibilities for types of cyber incidents, who's responsible for what, what access level are we given um, you know, as a customer to look at the logs and look at the data so that we can do forensics on, on attacks that we see. Gotcha. So does that mean you see software as a service? Is that more challenging from a risk management perspective? Just because in a software as a service environment, 
the onus of responsibility for application security is is more on the vendor than it is on the buyer, if that makes sense? No, it, it absolutely does. And and you're absolutely correct. We we definitely see that as a as a challenge, you know, uh as we as the agency and and really as the 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 whole defense department has started moving towards cloud we we have had to change our model of security you know we're we're generally used to my servers are in my servers my storage and my network are all inside my buildings behind my gates guns and guards and the only way you get in is by either attacking us which we can see and we can react to or you're on an authorized device, an authorized individual, um, and is, is allowed through our, our gates. That control uh, goes away when we're using these software as a service, you know, uh, provided services, and they're not behind our gates, guns, and guards. And, you know, where we're generally very, I think, protective of how we do security, how we do incident response, um, you know, our, our tactics and, and, and our methodologies, we, we try to keep sort of in-house as much as possible to, to make sure that we're not sharing, you know, our, our playbook. Um, we lose that ability when we do these, when we, when we use these software as a service capabilities. The, the flip side of that is, you know, I, well, I think the knee-jerk response would be, well, well, we shouldn't do that, right? Because it's, it's too risky. The flip side of that is we cannot continue to operate in a, in a bubble. And if we want to take advantage of sort of the best in breed technologies, the best in breed provider uh, applications that are out there, and if we want to be able to you know, really move into the future, we have to look at our security differently. And I think the way that we do that is through a combination of partnership with the vendors to understand applications and allow the vendors to understand why it is we do what we're doing and why it is we ask for uh, what we're asking for. And, and make it a partnership in that if they can give us a better way to solve those security problems in their environments, then, then we, should, you know, we should have a conversation about that. One of the concerns that I've seen in using software as a service um, specifically is we tend to dictate actions to the to the providers um, all under the auspice of security, right? So I, I want you to make this change to your platform. Well, what that tends to do, while we believe it is it is you know checking the checking the box on the security audit, it actually may make their application less secure because it was never designed to do that thing that we're asking them to do, and so. Not all, not in all of cases, but in, in a majority, I think, of cases, the rules and the and the the requirements that we levy on these applications that were never designed to to do what we're asking them to do, uh, it actually hurts us in a way. So by creating a true partnership, by by looking at them as partners and not as you know a person selling you a piece of software, we create an open dialogue where we can explain to a vendor our requirements on security, and we can have an open and honest conversation about, well, how can we do the things we're asking for without compromising the integrity of your application and make sure that you're still providing the best value application uh, to us as a customer? 
Gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for the explanation. So what are some of the specific security challenges or risks associated with vendor-based cloud infrastructure? And you were kind of getting into this a little bit, but what kinds of strategies do you employ to mitigate these risks, especially if you're dealing with, you know, different kinds of environments like, you know, infrastructure as code um, versus software as a service versus like a hybrid solution? What, what does that look like from your end? I think a majority of the security challenges really come down to availability of security data in the format that we're used to. And uh, kind of what I mean by that is, you know, our, our cyber uh, our cyber defenders are used to operating in a in a in a certain way, right? They're used to looking at logs a certain way. They're used to doing correlation in a certain way, and they're used to having multiple tiers of data. From you know, from the application itself all the way up to the to the network boundary and, and everything in between. They're 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 using all that data and they're combining it together to create that true holistic picture of the threat landscape. What we find is is as in going in some of these software as a service uh, and platform as a service delivered applications, we lose some of that visibility. And you know the 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 knee jerk reaction is well that's not that's not good enough, we can't do that. But we started asking ourselves the question, does that data actually mean as much as, as much to us as we're putting importance on it, right? Does it actually mean that much? Does it actually help us create the true picture of threat landscape or is it just data that gives us additional information, but you know the true, meat and potatoes of the data, so to speak, is, is in a different location. And so we started digging into that conversation. And what we're, what we're finding is network-driven defense is beginning to become archaic. You know, and, and really the biggest thing, the biggest uh, driver that taught us this was, was COVID-19. I mean, when you have a workforce of, you know, I think it's around 4 million, when you have a workforce of 4 million individuals, and all of a sudden they all start working from home as opposed to majority of them working inside your buildings, behind your gates, guns and guards and on your network. Uh, it really changes the way you have to look at cybersecurity. Um, and it taught us a few things. You know, it taught us that location can't be your delimiter for access. You know, you can't say, well, they're coming from, you know, this government facility, we're good. That's safe, right? It it changed things, right? Because now he's now that person's at their house, and they're still authorized. They're still that same person. They just happen to be somewhere different. So what it taught us is is a couple things. One thing uh, it taught us is that our data that we're looking at has to be more focused around protection of information as opposed to protection of a network, right? And this goes into uh, the zero trust model where, you know, you look at assume breach, you know, assume your network has already been breached and, and you're protecting data, you know, limiting blast radius and that kind of thing. But it has really moved us towards the, the realization that we, we really need to, to shift to more of a data-driven defense model. Yeah, so I wanted to follow up on that because I did want to ask about the DISA Thunderdome Zero Trust prototype and 
how that's integrating with hacks security efforts and goals. I was wondering if you had insight into that prototype and if you were able to provide any kind of update or I guess just some color on what that testing phase looks like right now. Sure, yeah. I, I'll start off by saying um, that that is being worked by a different part of the agency. Um, so I, yeah. I can't really speak authoritatively on it. Sure. Um, but what I can mention on that is, you know, where where hack comes into to play in the conversation is you know, zero trust and and you know uh, SD WAN conversations have a big impact on how we deliver hosting and compute to the department. Uh, and so we are we are connected with the with the Thunderdome pilot. We're connected with other SD WAN initiatives um, and other security initiatives, with the ultimate goal of creating the, the mesh of connectivity necessary for us to deliver hosting and compute services anywhere in the world to our user community that needs those, those services. Um, and, and so, you know, Thunderdome is looking, is, is really attacking that question of, you know, a user can access this, you know, can access the network from anywhere in the world and we need to be able to not only enable that access, but ensure that where they're coming from, you know, that their device is secure, that they are, you know, they are who they say they are, that they're, they're supposed to have access to the data that they're accessing. And, you know, making decisions on a multitude of factors. And, and in some cases, putting additional requirements in place for them to access data, depending on where they are, who they are, or what device they're coming from. Um, but for us on the on the hosting and compute side, we're really looking at how do we deliver services to our customers, uh, hosting and compute services to our customers that enable them to do their job in a secure fashion, but doesn't hinder the overly burden them with multiple gates of you know, approval to do a particular thing, right? To allow a new server to access the network or to deliver a new application to the network. We're trying to find that balance between user experience and security. Gotcha. So I want to change gears a little bit to talk more about DevSecOps. I'm interested in how DevSecOps dovetails with vulnerability management and mitigation, especially going back to what you were saying about environment as code, it seems like DevSecOps would be a really good strategy in that context. Does DevSecOps approach improve reaction times due to the more, due to a more real-time look at cyber incidents and being able to catch them more quickly? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I like how you, you, you saw the connection between DevSecOps vulnerability management and environment as code, right? So environment as code, you know, really is a DevSecOps principle. Um, and the the whole idea behind environment as code and, and the, the DevSecOps model, it the it is all kind of based around the ability to improve reaction to necessary changes and events. Um, whether that's cyber, whether that's operational, or whether that's uh, you know, product delivery driven, you know, the DevSecOps methodology and the, you know, environment as code methodology 
is really designed to, to uh, accelerate all of those types of changes. And you know, in, in, the, uh, in the world of containerized and serverless applications, you can simply say, hey, I need you to stop using this version of that application and use the next version and rolling redeploy all of the containers to, to clean that up. Um, you know, on a server platform, a hard server platform, it's a little more difficult, but an automation task ran by the DevSecOps pipeline can take care of that action for you across your entire server infrastructure. What you don't need is, you know, 10 very tired and, and you know, very focused administrators having to pull them in at three in the morning and have them go through each and every server. Um, so the, the DevSecOps methodology and, and the pipeline methodology and the continuous integration, continuous deployment uh, methodology is absolutely built with vulnerability management in mind. And I think it's actually a core focus. But it's not just reaction. And, and that's where I think uh, the DevSecOps methodology is, is, is very cool. It enables fast reaction to, to problems, but it also offers a low burden, a low burden analysis and approval process for any changes that go into the environment. So I wanted to follow up on something that you just mentioned about uh, different security standards or different security protocols, like fewer security hoops to jump through for different data sets, like depending on how sensitive they are, like depending on, you know, how much of a big deal it would be if someone were to access that data when they weren't supposed to. And I'm wondering if that plays a role in what DESA CTO Steve Wallace and Director Lieutenant General Bob Skinner have talked about with regards to the user experience. I've heard them mention several times now that they're trying to improve the user experience with cybersecurity controls. And I think this is supposed to be a goal of the Thunderdome Zero Trust prototype, where getting security, the security process on the user end to a place where people aren't trying to bypass security controls to do their jobs or trying to find workarounds because it's so much of a headache to like jump through all these hoops just to access the data that you need to do your job. And I'm wondering how much of a problem this is specifically for hybrid cloud environments, but I'm also interested in if, you know, getting better at adjusting security controls for different data sets or different applications could help improve the user experience in general and just allow for people to be more diligent about cybersecurity because it's more of a, a fluid thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely does. And, and I think that the scope of the problem that, that uh, Lieutenant General Skinner and, and uh, Steve Wallace were, were talking about, while I think they were referencing Thunderdome, um, you know, because it was it, it is a core focus of that of that prototype. I think it's even larger, and uh, you know, I, and I think it's large enough that that the director uh, you know included this as a particular line of effort for for the entire agency. Um, you know, we see this across the board, and and I know you know uh, from my counterparts that work on you know the uh, the end user workstations to my counterparts that are working on Thunderdome uh, to, to my organization, which is doing hosting and compute. We have the same problem in different areas. Um, and it's that security is hard. And 
not only is security hard, but keeping up with the latest and greatest in security is hard. But I, I don't think the problem of, of uh, you know, user experience and security fighting each other uh, is, is unique to, to hybrid cloud. I don't think it's unique to, to cloud in general. I don't think it's unique to data center. I think it's across the entire IT community. It, it's, and it's very hard to find that right level of you know, security versus, versus uh, user experience. And we always used to, call, you know, I always used to refer to it as security versus engineering, right? Engineers want to do cool stuff and the, and the security people are, are always holding us down. And you know, security people are thinking, well, all those engineers, they just want to do crazy stuff. And, and all I want to do is keep us safe. We both have the, the same goal, right? To deliver the best, best value product to our customers, but we all look at it in different lenses. So I think some of the things that we're trying to do to, to really deal with the user experience and security problem and, and, and try to meet in the middle on those things is by taking the, the human and some of the, the human-led processes out of it. And by that, I mean, we're looking at a lot of automation, right? We're trying to look at, can we do uh, another as code mantra called compliance as code? Where, you know, instead of defining your environment as your code, well, now you're defining your rules as code. And you're checking an environment as code definition against your compliance as code rule set and making sure that they align. And where there are violations, you can submit those violations to, uh, you know, to, a, to an authorizing official to, to give a yes or no on, hey, we want to bypass this or, hey, we'll accept that risk. Or you can have them automatically changed back. Um, but the first way I think we're, we're really attacking this is we're looking at trying to automate a lot of those tasks, automate a lot of those, those, those checks, a lot of those rules. And we're also trying to continuously analyze policy, process, and governance to make sure that we're up on the latest, the latest data, right? So we're looking at Cloud, cloud brought in uh, new level, you know, new types of peering technologies where our network is peering with their network. Um, you know, where where we were just kind of our own thing. Now we have to let these these cloud providers into our network as well in order to use their services. Well, our policy today doesn't even allow for that, let alone support it. So we had to adjust our policy. We had to to look at relook at all of our, our rules and say, well, what do we need to do to bring these vendors in, but bring them in securely? Gotcha. So I have one more question for you before we wrap everything up. I'm interested in getting your take on the joint warfighting cloud capability, since I know that's uh, part of your job. I'm interested in what you consider to be some of the cloud security risks you're concerned about as DOD gears up to award the joint warfighting cloud capability in December. And I'm also interested in the impact that this has retroactively on JADC2 and the need for secure data interoperability and what kind of cybersecurity mindset or culture you think DOD and DISA need to be fostering in order to be successful in this area. You know, we're, we're looking at JWCC to try to create an easy path for DOD applications to, to utilize commercial cloud, right? Providing them optionality. If you want to keep your applications on-prem, 
you can do that. If you want to go into our private cloud solutions, uh, you can do that. Or if you are looking at going into public cloud, we want to give you an easy way to get there. But so all of that leads to wider adoption of cloud for, for DoD. And so I, I really think that the security risks are the same um, and, and are all focused around as DoD moves to cloud, what are the risks we see? And uh, a lot of it is, is kind of what we've, we've talked about throughout this, uh, throughout the entire podcast, right? So, uh, you know, getting the data that is necessary for us to defend our applications and our data, introducing new attack vectors that weren't there when we were our own little castle and moat and, you know, we, we didn't have any connections from the outside. Uh, you know, looking at new attack vectors and pivot vectors where uh, maybe we didn't have to defend in that direction before, we just assumed it was okay. Uh, well, now we can't make that assumption and it really should not make that assumption. And then finding out and, and finding a way to control the shadow IT across the department um, in, in regards to cloud, right? It, the cloud vendors give you by nature of providing a, a you know, a a best value product, uh, they make it easy for you to onboard. They make it easy for you to spin up an environment. But what's not easy is complying with the rules and requirements, you know, because the, the cloud provider doesn't own those requirements, right? The DOD does. So I, I think there's, I think those three veins, data analysis, you know, uh, getting data and data analysis, the shadow IT conversation, and then the uh, increase in attack vectors, you know, new attack vectors are, are really the concerns that we look at, are, uh, are the, the categories, I'll say, of, of the concerns we look at. And it can't stop us from adopting cloud, it can't stop us from moving to cloud, and it can't adopt us from moving mission critical applications to these cloud resources. And I think the way we do that is, you know, to kind of sum up the beginning, you know, the beginning of the podcast, Looking at the at the vendors as partners, looking at them as as a collaborative, looking at it as a collaborative approach to security and delivery of a product to to our customers. And then when you look at uh, you know the use cases for JetC2, and you look at the use cases for for command and control in general, um, we have to further extend the security mindset. Uh, out to the tactical edge. And that does make security more difficult. It, it does complicate matters um, in, in securing resources that are in the field, but that's where we look at, have to look at security differently and where we have to treat security more as a function of data protection as opposed to boundary protection. Um, and, and that is where we move towards more zero trust models. It's where we move uh, more towards an assumed breach and, uh, you know, trust but verify solution uh, to, to securing our, our, our data and our infrastructure. And I think by doing those things, um, it, we, are on a, we will be on a path to be more successful at doing true security and really harmonizing security with our users' experience. And I won't, you know, I don't look at this as something that's going to be done tomorrow, right? This is a this is a, a change in multiple areas. It's it's an operational change, the way we look at operations. It's a change in the way we look at security, but it is absolutely a cultural change. 
Yeah, that sounds great. And, you know, speaking of partnerships, what are you most excited about, at least from a cybersecurity perspective, going into the joint war fighting cloud capability with uh, whichever vendors that DOD chooses? I think there. I think I'm excited at the, at the challenge that we're creating, um, and I know that sounds weird, but I I love you know any any good engineer loves a good challenge. Sure. Um, and and we're creating a major challenge by by you know bringing you know doing what the department needs, which is bringing multiple vendors into this conversation, and and really opening up the the cloud uh, highway, so to speak. Right to to get our users there, and what it gives us is the problem of sprawl, right? The problem of application sprawl and and the problem of um, you know protection boundary sprawl. Uh, but I think what I'm most excited about is the challenge that, that creates, and what it, what it has done is it has required all of the department to come together to have a a, a conversation and work together to solve this 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 security, you know, the, the security posture. Um, and, you know, where, where we tend to, in the department, live in our own little silos, um, you know, and, and, and maybe sometimes not even trust each other. This has forced us to unify. It has forced us to, to break down the walls, to talk to each other, and to honestly come to the table and say, how can I help you perform your mission? How can we work together to achieve our goal? And extending that even further, it is now required all those groups working together to partner with industry to come up with the right answer because it's their platforms, right? And, and nobody knows their platforms better than they do. So we have come together in a way that I don't think I've seen in my time in the department, both internally and externally. We've, we've unified, we're working together to try to figure out the mission. And my hope is that, that, that this example of collaboration, this example of cross-agency, cross-organization collaboration inspires more of this. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Corey. I feel like we covered a lot of ground today and I definitely learned a lot about environment as code and how that impacts cybersecurity and a cloud environment. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. A really good conversation. Really appreciate it. Clear, consistent communication between cloud vendors and buyers can help mitigate many cloud vulnerabilities. DevSecOps, strong data management practices, and an automated self-documenting cloud environment are also key. But all of these tools and strategies need to keep the user experience top of mind. A poor user experience in the cloud facilitates shadow IT and weakens cyber posture. Cloud vendors and other industry partners can help federal agencies modernize the cloud by maximizing visibility and prioritizing user-friendly policies that don't compromise cybersecurity. This will be incredibly important for the successful launch of the Pentagon's joint warfighting cloud capability. To get deep analysis and insider perspectives on what's trending in federal cybersecurity, subscribe to and follow CyberCast and visit our website at govciomedia.com. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening.
Cybercast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com. 